Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of the Good Morning Liberty podcast. My name is Nate, and with me, as always, is Charles Chuck Thompson. And with us, but not, as always, very special guest, Mr. William Ryan from Granite Shares. How you doing today? Doing very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're super excited to have you on here. So a little uh, something you probably didn't know about us before doing this, but we actually run a trading class, which is the cool thing to do yeah. these days. So we do a libertarian podcast, basically free market focused podcast and all the ways that we, we think the free market could do a few things better. And then we also have been, I've been trading now for about seven years. So we also do a, a trading class at the same time. So this is a, a really exciting conversation. Good stuff. So, why don't you go ahead and tell us, uh, just for everyone who doesn't know, give us your your backstory and and uh, where you're at right now. Yeah, sure. No, happy to. Um, so I'm Will Rind. I'm the founder of a asset management firm called Granite Shares. We specialize in exchange traded funds or ETFs for short. Uh, I'm from Scotland originally. Um, so been in New York, where I'm coming to you from today, um, for the last eleven years and. I founded the company just over three years ago, and we've grown the business to, we manage just over one and a half billion um, dollars as of today. Uh, and we focus really on three things. We do real assets. Uh, the majority of that is gold, um, but we do platinum and we do other commodities as well. Uh, we do income, specifically high income, and then we do uh, alternative disruptive equity, um, which is our X out strategy. So there, there's a little bit about me. All right. That's awesome. Now I do have to chime in right here at the beginning because, you know, I, and, and make a little bit of a joke for my, my friend, Nate oh, here God. That's and so being from Scotland, you know, Nate's <laughs> Nate has never seen Braveheart, which I thought is one of the greatest we're, movies ever made. And I just wanted to get we're your very thoughts. not serious on this podcast. But you genuinely have not seen it. Nate has no, never I seen have it. not. No. Tell him he has I to watch it. You have to watch it. You definitely have to watch it. There's some yes. good new ones as well. Outlaw King was one they did on Netflix very recently. No, I watched which that one. Good. I like that one. That was good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there are definitely a few of them out there, which are well worth watching. Perfect. Okay. See, we got more now, people. Now, you now have we to got watch. that out of the way. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I guess I have to do it now. Yes. Uh, so for, for all the people who don't know, what is an ETF? Because it's, it seems like a fairly new thing, although it's it's not that new. But a lot of people, I think, don't know what ETFs are. So, what do you, what even is that? No, it's a great question. Um, so the acronym stands for Exchange Traded Fund. So that's kind of the key there. And really, what it is is it's a mutual fund in many ways that uh, is listed on a stock exchange, and you can then buy and sell the shares during the market open hours, uh, the trading day, just like buying shares of Apple. You know? So it's really just a fund that is listed on an exchange that can be bought and sold anytime through a brokerage account. Now, you know, comparing it to mutual funds, what makes an exchange-traded fund better than a mutual fund if, if it is similar? It, it is similar. So I, I always like to frame it by saying that you know, ETFs are really the new technology. If you think of mutual funds kind of being the old technology from the asset management space. And I think what makes it better, um, there are probably three fundamental things that people always talk about. Number one is typically low cost. So ETFs have 
gotten a reputation for being largely index-based. So that means they're largely you know, replicating uh, benchmarks such as the S&P 500 or gold, um, and they do that very inexpensively. Typically, mutual funds charge a lot higher fees. Um, the second thing is that you can buy and sell them whenever you want. So with a mutual fund, you can't just go into a brokerage account and buy X amount of shares or sell X amount of shares in any given day. You have to do that typically with the provider um, directly that you're buying it from. And then lastly, ETFs are, are, tend to be much more tax efficient. And so specifically what this means is that they don't distribute capital gains uh, taxes to investors for the main, uh, obviously there will be some strategies that will, usual caveats, but for the most part they don't. And that's a big benefit over mutual funds. That's and, yeah, that's a huge uh, benefit. Are you fairly, uh, do you have, are they aggressive? What I was kind of wondering is how often do you change out what you're holding inside of the ETF? You know, how aggressive are they? So I guess it really depends. I mean, the great thing about ETFs and probably one of the re reasons why they're so popular. I mean, this is, when I started my career, um, this was just getting off the ground. And I was involved in ETFs right at the very beginning. And, um, you know, back in the day, it was a very small market, just a new product, but now this is a $6 trillion industry globally. And you know, one of the reasons for that is because um, you can kind of invest in whatever you want. I mean, really the ETF, you think of it as like just the, the wrapper or the package, um, but within that package or within that wrapper, you can put really almost any investment strategy you want. So you could have something like gold, you could have you know, US equities, you could have various international equities, you can have bonds, almost anything. And that's why they become so popular because like a lot of things, it's just the choice available to investors, which is huge. Yeah. Like, and, uh, and oil and different commodities like that. Um, exactly. Yeah. I traded a little bit of uh, UCO and USO. Those couple different <laughs> ETFs. So a lot of SPXL and, uh, and all that recently. Right. So although the, it's, it's been, man, the market has been, uh, surprising lately i would say I, I i don't you know when the whole crash happened i i didn't have the feeling that it was the full actual crash i felt like it was you know that a little bit a little maybe overdone at first and i thought we'd have a rebound because uh, it just in my from what i could gather it would be different if we had a failure of all of these businesses and there was a crash associated with that versus having a massive crash that was simply associated with probably a lack of income, but not because the businesses themselves had failed, but because obviously of our economic uh, situation that we've, we've been in the pandemic. Uh, so I, yeah, I thought that there would be a recovery, but I did not expect us to be at all time highs um, already right now. Did you, did you see that coming? <laughs> Um, not in that exact way. I think um, most people have been kind of surprised by you know the market's reaction. But I think the other thing that's really important to talk about, which is just so hard for people to really understand, is the impact of the stimulus measures. In other words, the money printing that's come from the Federal Reserve and from other central banks around the world. I mean, literally, you know, think of it as being almost like completely overwhelming um, the markets. And so, from that perspective, that's why in my mind. You have this sort of dislocation between the stock market on one hand and the real economy, you know, on the other hand. That's that, you know, I heard you talk on another podcast about the the moral hazard associated with that. And that's one that's kind of worrying to me because we don't really know what 
companies uh, should be there that that you know that they're that they're there right now. They haven't been allowed to fail. The whole thing hasn't really been allowed to fail. And I'm wondering right. when the Fed stops pumping in the money, what's actually going to be left over? You know, are we creating an even bigger bubble than what we were dealing with in the first place? Um, well, because not only which, is Sorry, sorry to cut you off there. No, you're good. Not only is the market making new highs, but I mean, gold is making a lot of gains too as well, right? No, absolutely. And I think if you think about, you know, what's going on right now, that, you know, the lessons are really the playbook, if you will, has been devised from the financial crisis. And so back in 2008, 2009, you know, the central bank response to the global financial crisis was to print lots of money and to stimulate the system in a very kind of, in a very, you know, overwhelming way. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, back then it's important, especially coming up on an election year, obviously it won't be long now before we have a presidential election. And I think it's worth reminding that, you know, back just after 2008, a lot of people now would be perhaps surprised just to remember that at that time, you know, the, this, the Republican Party, the average voter on the Republican side actually opposed stimulus um, obviously, the average voter on the Democrat side, as you might expect, um, was in favor of stimulus. Um, there was something called the Tea Party. Um, there was a movement that you know wanted um, to try and you know let or at least um, you know let markets do their do their own thing. Um, but now that's gone, and you know the big difference around this time is that you know overwhelming it doesn't matter what political party you belong to or you subscribe to but both parties the median voter on both sides is overwhelmingly in favor of stimulus and that's the market that you've got and that's why you know coming back to your point that gold is doing so well in this environment because people think you know all this money flip, money printing um, ultimately has to you know what's the reaction it can't just be a consequence free uh, move otherwise you know everyone will be doing it or every central bank would have been doing it forever and the, the consequence has to be that there's a devaluation of the currency. And so people buy gold to try and protect against that. Right. Because if there wasn't a consequence, why don't we just print, you know, you know, a hundred trillion or. Exactly. Know, a, a why quint- tax anyone in the first place? We'll just right. print free money for money. everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so is there a period where you, where you could foresee some, some actual rapid inflation? I mean, we didn't get the inflation uh, the the last time around, but this is a, this is a little bit different. It's a little bit more widespread than than the last time. Um, I think everyone thinks that there's no way we can actually hit that point where it breaks and we hit a hyperinflation point. But I, I feel like everyone probably thought that before it happened. I would say that do you do you think there's a point where that could actually happen? Um, yeah, I mean, we keep using this word for 2020. You know, the word of 2020 is unprecedented, isn't it? You know, that you know these things keep happening that people say, well, you know, that could never happen, and oops, you know, it has happened, and that's unprecedented. And I think that um, you know, certainly one of the big differences between now and last time was, you know, remember that last time, you know, what really happened, it was a financial crisis. That meant that the crisis emanated from the banks, from Wall Street directly. It wasn't a crisis that emanated from you know, Main Street or indeed the broader economy. It was a fundamentally a banking uh, crisis, which obviously impacted, therefore, the broader economy, but still you know, largely kind of associated with, with banks and, and financial services. And this time around, you know, clearly what we have is a situation that affects everybody um, in terms of the, the broader economic picture. 
And you know, with the banking crisis last time, remember that what happened was the, the policy response was to lend money or to give money from the Federal Reserve to the banks. But the banks were in such bad shape that they were too scared to lend it um, or didn't want to lend it back into the economy. And so in many ways, although the, the money printing itself was you know, a stimulus, that it was sort of almost like we met with austerity by the banking sector, and that sort of counteracted the effect um, to many extents. I think so now the- you've got... Yeah, I mean, just say now, you know, fast forward, obviously, to, to now, there's no incentive for the banks, for anybody to stop this money going into the economy. And obviously, the government, you know, have learned from, from last time around. And this time, it's not just about putting money into the hands of the banks, but, you know, clearly people have been you know, given paychecks um, kind of directly into their own accounts, another unprecedented. So the more money we have, that's you know the first time it didn't really change hands that many times. It kind of was given to one place and and really stayed there. Maybe changed hands a couple times, and I don't know if that's called the velocity. Maybe, um, but this time it's a it's a little bit different when you're actually you could actually be inflating uh, a lot worse when when it actually goes all the way through the entire economy. So yeah, and. The size. I mean, we should, we should not we should not forget that the size of the money printing this time around is just much much bigger than what happened last time. Right. Not only yeah. the stimulus package that was passed, but all the money that the Fed is putting in behind the scenes. Exactly. You know, and they started putting in money before the the actual crisis hit. I mean, we were talking about you know the Fed starting to open up the liquidity markets. Um, I think it was back in January or February before all this was happening. And, and was do you think that maybe that was stemmed from? what they knew was going to happen from China and the, what was happening globally? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, obviously. But, um, you know, one thing that we do know is that they tried to raise rates, you know, over the last few years, but just couldn't. And it got to a point where, uh, again, the market just wouldn't uh, let them raise rates higher than, you know, where we ended up. And especially, it's especially difficult in a world where, you know, most other major economies had zero interest rates, if not negative interest rates. So again, think about how difficult it is again, to raise interest rates in an environment where everybody else in the world is at zero or negative. So, so we're just, trying to compete with all of the other countries and we can't compete by having a lot more expensive money than, than all of them. That's, uh, that's really interesting. It, that was something I'd actually never thought about. We brought on someone from uh, Free to Choose, which was Milton Friedman's network. And um, they're obviously very free market, but he brought up the fact of the low interest rates and he said, we can't really just raise the interest rates up because there's so many other people offering money uh, for free or paying you to take money, maybe. So how how are you going to compete with that? And uh, one big point that you brought up is I definitely remember when stimulus and money printing was a bad thing. Uh, Or, you know, you would think at least from one side of the political spectrum, it would be a, a bad thing. And it is a very weird time where we talk all the time. Obviously, this is a political podcast, so we we go there all the time. But there seems to be a complete shift and maybe a total lack of principle when it comes to any type of uh, monetary, monetary policy, policy yeah. wh- whatsoever. When it comes to taxation, the Fed, debt, the deficit, any of that. Uh, I feel like you mentioned the Tea Party. People really seem to care about that for a minute. And they're all they're all gone. I'm almost all yeah. of them. Obviously, there's a few. And I would but, s- and I would say the argument being made is that well, every other country is doing it, so the re- it's it's no big deal for us to be in debt. It's no big deal for any of that. So can you speak a little bit to yeah. what your thoughts are on you know the debt side of things and doing what we're doing? 
uh, versus what the world economy is doing and the negative interest rates and all of that? Yeah, no, I think that um, we kind of touched on the point just a a couple of minutes earlier, which is I don't think that people see there being any negative consequences to it because as of, you know, as of right now or the past, it hasn't affected them in a negative way. And so it seems like you can create money for nothing and you can do an infinite amount of money printing and there is no side effect. And of course, we all know that's not true. Um, but I think the illusion is that um, this is something that can go on, you know, for forever, and no one has to worry about it. And I think, you know, even even at central banking level, I think that you know, there are a couple of calculations being made. That one, from a policy perspective, um, you can increase the amount of debt um, almost to infinity, um, and it doesn't really matter because it's so so big right now. And the second thing is that interest rates will be low or be, be you know, zero or if very close to zero for, again, an indefinite period of time. Now, obviously, if one of those calculations or both those calculations turn out to be wrong, then we are in some serious trouble. Um, and that, you know, at the end of the day, as we all know, accumulating a lot of debt, there is still interest rates, there is still interest payment on that. And, you know, more debt you accumulate, the more interest payment you have to make. And obviously, if rates go up because the market pressures put, push rates up, um, that's very difficult from a from a central banking perspective. But I think the the basic sort of idea behind it is that it's a way to you know do a wealth transfer. I mean, that's really what it's fundamentally about between people who are savers or savers um, to debtors. And you know, there needs to be this transfer of wealth between the savers you know, to the debtors. And money printing is a, is a very effective policy tool to do that. And a lot of people you know, don't really understand what's going on, aren't really aware of it. And therefore, it's an easy decision for a politician to make versus saying, well, let's raise taxes on everybody because everybody hates um, you know, higher taxes. Yeah. And I think, I think almost it's an addictive, as you mentioned, it's not affecting anyone really, like it's not in their backyard, so to speak. And so it's almost this addictive uh, type of, um, you know, going along with the policy because, you know, if, if everybody else is going to get theirs, I'm going to get mine too, um, type of thing. And then it's, it becomes addictive because you don't see any negative consequences. Never mind. There's plenty in history. I mean, we could go to the Weimar Republic in Germany and what happened in Russia. And then most recently, the example in Venezuela, um, you know, where inflation skyrocketed 20,000%, I think is what it hit in Venezuela, somewhere around there. So it, it's, um, you know, we talk about all the time, like, you know, America's not uh, invincible, <laughs> right? Yeah. Just like no empire was ever invincible throughout all of human history. They are until they're not anymore. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, and again, that's the danger with, with a lot of this is that I think for politicians, you know, what is the incentive? And, and this is a, you know, more of a comment, I guess, on the political system rather than the policies. But, um, you know, what is the incentive for the politician to raise their hand and say, this is fundamentally wrong? We have to stop doing that because, as as we know, in the past ten years, there were political parties, there were politicians that did try and affect, you know, what people, you know, determined were austerity measures. Um, but they were obviously uh, greeted very badly by the voters because people, you know, are so used to having everything paid for that, you know, it seems like you're kind of withdrawing services or withdrawing, um, you know, certain things that people don't like. 
And there really is no incentive, especially when you're solely spending other people's money or money yeah. that didn't exist yesterday. I mean, what would be your incentive? You don't bear the cost of something going wrong. You're always going to be okay. You know, you've got your nice salary and your places that you're living in and and you're going to be fine. And, and uh, you don't really ever have to deal with the consequences of any of the terrible policies. There might be someone else in office when those bad consequences actually come into play. Yeah, no, exactly right. I mean, they, you know, back in my own home country, um, going through a similar thing. And certainly the US is not alone. There's majority of countries around the world that are doing some form of uh, similar economic policy. But at the end of the day, you know, when we're going through this pandemic, the politicians are still getting their cash, their, you know, payroll or paychecks cashed, you know, every month. And that's, you know, not something that everybody can say. Right. So what's what's the benefit in being involved in gold during a time like this? Uh, back to you, back to the ETFs. I mean, uh, with gold has been just hitting all time highs. I don't know exactly where it's at right now. I think it took a dip p- potentially, but it's a little I mean, under two thousand. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's the benefit of when we talk about all this inflation and the potential for hyperinflation? It seems like gold's a pretty good pretty good bet. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to go back a little bit. And I was just talking about this yesterday, so it's kind of fresh in my mind, kind of ideal. But you've got to go back to um, 1971 and when you know, America came off of the gold standard. And really, that was the collapse of what was the Bretton Woods Agreement. And you know, for Nixon abandoned um, the gold standard and the gold price traded freely for the first time, because obviously before that, when you had a gold standard, it was the government that set the gold price. It wasn't set by the market. And so, you know, since 1971, we've had a free gold price. In other words, um, there's nothing that affects the gold price other than, you know, ostensibly supply and demand. Um, But the gold price has steadily increased um, since 1971 today. And actually looking at the figures at the end of last year, you know, the average uh, increase, you know, from a yearly perspective, you know, gold has returned on average just over 10% per annum since 1971. So it's been really an incredible long-term uh, investment for people. And one of the main reasons for this is that, you know, back in 1971, um, the dollar and other major currencies, it's not just a dollar effect, but these paper currencies have lost you know, substantially all of their value against gold um, since gold traded freely. And that goes to the exact situation that we're talking about, which is, you know, paper currency, by definition, intrinsic value is nothing. Um, it's just a mechanism um, for a means of exchange, uh, etc. But fundamentally, uh, it has lost nearly all of its value against gold over time. And so people that are worried about the dollar, you know, the British pound, the euro, the yen, it doesn't matter about fundamentally currencies losing their value due to uh, either erroneous or just, um, you know, downright negative uh, policies, you know, buy gold as a way to hedge that. And that's really kind of the crux of what's going on. Obviously, gold, you know, is a is a non-interest rate or a non-interest bearing asset. And so another big benefit is when you get interest rates going to zero, the opportunity cost of owning gold therefore decreases dramatically. And so um, from that perspective, it's attractive for people uh, as a way to diversify. And, yeah, and uh, sorry, Charlie, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's that's uh, you know it's really good. It's something I believe Ron Paul talked a lot about too, um, <laughs> coming off the the gold standard. Since we are a libertarian type podcast, 
Uh, you know, he spoke a lot when he was in Congress about the the gold standard and monetary policy and something we don't you know, see much anymore. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, staying on the ETFs here. Um, it's now, you know, you said you were start, got started in the beginning and now it's a $6 trillion industry. Um, what do you think has led uh, to that? Is it an easier form of investing? Is this a, would you consider this to be a new age of investing where you're seeing a lot more, what I would uh, say not only retail traders, but I think a lot more people just paying attention to their own finances and, and starting to invest themselves with the likes of Robinhood and $0 broker fees and all kinds of things coming out yeah. in the market. Is this a new age of investing? Well, it absolutely is. I mean, you have to remember the, the ETFs um, were designed actually uh, as a retail product, but they got hijacked by institutions and there were, what we realized was institutions were willing to pay a premium for liquidity that they didn't have with traditional funds. And so that really kind of got the, the market going in a major way. And of course, when institutions get involved, there's a lot of competition and fees have been driven down. So one of the biggest things that the ETFs have going for them, and in many ways, it's like the rise of the supermarkets, like Walmart, like, you know, you name it, um, sort of big brand supermarket. And what they were able to do is offer a vast array of products at incredibly cheap prices. Um, and really, that's kind of the key to the success of the ETF industry. And so a lot of good products, um, very, very low cost uh, with high liquidity, that's really the, the key sort of selling point. But you're absolutely right that over time, it's morphed from being not just an institutional product to being now much more of a retail product. And clearly, with um, the information age that we live in, you know, financial education is everywhere. I mean, we're obviously doing it right now, but um, it's very easy for investors to access information about financial products, financial services in a way that just was not possible, you know, even 10 years ago. And so, you know, investors are much more educated. And to that, they have better products and services or better access to products and services than ever before. And look at the, you know, the fintech companies or the new companies like Robinhood, you know, that have kind of grown from nothing into multi-billion dollar franchises, you know, offering access um, to people, just improving the customer experience and, you know, getting people interested in investing. One other point I'll make on that, which again, is just something that, you know, goes back to the way that I was brought up and what I think is happening uh, today, which is when I was growing up in the UK, um, and, and still to the main extent, this, the UK doesn't have a lot of people owning uh, or doesn't have a lot of people investing in the stock market. Um, and that was largely because you had two fundamental factors at play. You had the property market, so bricks and mortar, and you know, people had always viewed you know, the thing that you did with your money from an investment perspective was you bought property. You bought a house, you bought um, apartments, whatever. Uh, and then the second thing was that you know, when you retire from whatever your job, you get a state pension. And so you don't need to invest in this thing called the stock market because the government's going to look after you when you retire. Now, obviously, in just in my sort of relatively short period of time, I'm now 41, but um, in that time, the property market has become completely inaccessible for the vast majority of you know, 20, early 20-year-olds, 20 millennials, whatever you want to call them, in terms of getting on the ladder. So it's very different you know, what I could buy potentially when I was 20 versus what someone could buy now 20, very different. So they can't invest in property. The idea of getting a state pension is gone. And most people think that, again, that's, that's nonsense. It's not going to happen. So that's why you get more and more people now going to the stock market as a way to invest, because it's really the only option that they have. 
And not, I would say not only that, but, um, you know, now you have people creating competing currencies. The crypto market has exploded, um, in recent years, uh, especially with Bitcoin obviously being, um, ridiculously volatile and, and has a lot of value, a, a huge market cap now. And then you see all of these others that are popping up everywhere and people are creating that, that competition in the currency market, because I think you're seeing not only that new age, uh, of investment, but also I think you have people recognizing that these policies that we've done for a long time, eventually they're going to, they're going to crumble and we need something to, to take its place. So what do you make of the cryptocurrency? And, um, you know, I don't know that much of, we know a little bit about it, but what do you make of that, that market and how it competes with the other currencies? Well, I'm very familiar with it because um, I actually was one of the people trying to create a ETF on Bitcoin. And so oh, wow, um, that was cool. the project that, yeah, I was, I was kind of very heavily involved in trying to do that. And ultimately, from a regulatory perspective, I don't think the regulator here is ready for that to happen yet. So right. it, it didn't become a reality. But to me, you know, I've been involved in the gold market for a long, long time. I used to run the largest gold fund in the world. My own gold fund now is over a billion dollars. And so I do a lot in the gold, have done a lot in gold industry. And to me, Bitcoin is very similar to gold in that it's an asset that people want to trade. Now, the main difference is that Bitcoin is a digital asset, gold is a physical asset, but it's still an asset that people want to trade. And in many ways, it's no different from other commodities, at least um, a bunch of different assets that people you know, have value or people perceive as having value and therefore interest in trading. And so, you know, for me, you know, I'm interested in it because it's an alternate asset, something that is not linked to the stock market, um, something that has a huge amount of volatility. So from a speculative perspective, can, can potentially make you a lot of money or lose you a lot of money. Um, but I think it's very interesting in terms of the development, something that we were, we were trying to get involved in and hopefully will do at some stage. Yeah, I, I have issues with Bitcoin as an actual currency. I understand the value and the perceived value and uh, people are willing to pay money for it. And I guess the value of something is what someone else is willing to pay for it. So I see that. I just uh, I couldn't imagine having all of my money in that currency and looking up one day and like 30% of my money being gone from yesterday. I think until until some of the volatility is is gone from it, I just don't see it as being a, a major uh, currency that people are paying with all uh, all the time. Well, I think you know, really I'd, the investments in the technology. Um, you know, Nate and I were talking the other day about you know why don't we vote online yet? You know, we have all to to speak a little bit of politics if we can. Um, you know, we have all this thing going on about mail-in voting and stuff like that. And I'm like, and I'm like, it is 2020. We have created yeah. unbelievable things with the internet. And so I was like, why don't we just have like a public ledger blockchain voting system where you could easily be identified. It's a public ledger. So you wouldn't be able to vote twice. It would be completely secure. Um, and we could do that. And I went and looked it up and the U S post office actually filed a patent for that, uh, back in yep. February. And I was like, dang it. I was <laughs> Four months too late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that if you think about what, you know, certainly my simplistic, you know, definition to the folks listening in terms of what blockchain is, I mean, if you think of it as an unhackable database, then I think it's, you start to think about well, what are the potential benefits of that? And I think very quickly, you can come up with some incredibly good applications for that. And obviously, as we're talking about, you know, voting in the election, you know, that would be that would be probably right at the top of the list. 
Right. Yeah. I, I wish they would have filed for that patent a couple of years ago and had this taken care of, but I guess <laughs> it's just, it's going to be a mess is, uh, is what's yeah. going to happen. Um, so you were mentioning a lot of younger people going in and especially with any age of all the different investing apps and everything. One thing I worry about if we were to give, I guess, some talk on people who are new to investing. One thing I worry about with people that are maybe in their 20s or younger would be uh, a lot of people seem to lack patience. And what I worry about is uh, people all getting Robin Hood and then buying Tesla when it splits next week or, or mm-hmm. whatever, and not not being crazy interested in purchasing an ETF that might have them a nice retirement by the time they want to retire in 30 years, but that they they might want to grab something that could decrease 50% by this time next year. And uh, <laughs> how do you get more people interested in the idea of an ETF as a retirement plan? Is that is that something that, you know, my wife has a 401k and obviously they've got matching. And so that's a big, that's a big deal. Yeah. But could you buy an ETF every year and try to hold this for your 25 to go for while, while you're doing this, you know, and how could you get that idea uh, across to people where they could actually feel as safe as they do with their normal retirements? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's all just, a, I think, fundamentally an investor education issue um, because uh, robo-advice, which at the end of the day, robo-advisors are really, um, you know, apps or their digital service, digital wealth management services to retail or to the end customer. Um, but they're, they're fundamentally trying to do that. They're offering you a diversified portfolio of ETFs. Um, for a low management fee, and you can just sign up and you know allocate to these um, people you know on a monthly basis, weekly basis, whatever you whatever you desire. So that has been a big area of advancement. Obviously, you can just go in and buy ETFs yourself, and the big brokers uh, or broker dealers offer sort of similar services. But I think you know fundamentally, when it comes to investing, it's just like everything. You know, the people have to be educated and. No, I'm not, I'm not so, I mean, I, I think the benefits of, of Robinhood and services like that, that far outweigh the negatives. Mm. And it wasn't long ago um, that we had you know, large trading commissions um, and you know, the, the accessibility to the market, the market structures um, had a lot of friction in them. Whereas now, you know, obviously you can you know, sign up to one of these accounts very quickly. You can buy and sell commission-free. And I think, um, I think that's a huge benefit to people. Uh, and you know, really helps people get get on the on the ladder, so to speak, with investing. But you know, like any investment strategy, I think people should just think about it from the basics of you know, what do you want to do. And if people were thinking about, you have long term money which goes into you know ETFs, um, you know, more secure, more conservative strategies. Then have you know some short term money, more speculative money. Um, then ultimately, the best way to learn is by buying stocks like Tesla. Uh, if that's the particular one to talk about. And if you have a bad experience, hopefully you'll learn not to do that again. Yeah. As long as you manage your risk to where you don't lose everything, hopefully. Um, I I do think it's a benefit that everyone can get in on the market for sure. I think the, the, uh, the educational aspect is going to be very important, which is what we really try to focus on a lot with, we talk a lot about psychological aspect, psychology and risk management. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I had a question for you um, in regards to to ETFs. Um, so you know, one large part about the um, you know the last financial crisis crisis we had back in two thousand eight and two thousand nine were 
you know, these mortgage backed securities, basically a package of, of deals that they were, um, that, that obviously they were bad assets, you know, mixed in that got a really good, uh, credit approval rating. Do you see the same type of risks in ETFs? And if so, how do you look, how do you look for those to where you're not buying something with that may be a D or F rating, uh, when it's being <laughs> sold as an, as an A or a plus. Yeah. yeah so I'm, I get the, I get the analogy. I think the, the difference is that ETFs, like you said, they're really just packages, they're wraps um, for underlying investments. And those underlying investments themselves have different risk profiles. So obviously, if you were to buy uh, an ETF that invested in gold, that's very different from buying an ETF that's invested in you know, Vietnamese stocks. And so it, the, the good news is the ETFs are completely transparent. So you can go to any issuer's website and go to our website, anybody in the market. And by regulatory, um, it's a regulatory necessity, you have to, or you can download the holdings of any ETF on any day. So you can see exactly what you're invested in. I think the, the therefore the issue that ETFs can potentially have, which is the same issue that everybody has, is that if you're invested so I'll take the example because you mentioned it of USO, that if you buy um, shares of something like a USO, then what you are invested in is oil futures contracts. Now, obviously, that just replicates the underlying oil futures prices. And so you had a situation in the crash where there was a very real concern that that fund could have gone to zero because the oil futures market you know, went negative for a very brief period of time. Right. And so if you're investing the wrong contract, it just so happened they weren't in that particular contract that went negative, but um, your investment could go down. So that's not a fault of the ETF per se, but that is a risk with any particular investment, whether it's the actual underlying market that has you know, a stress event and ultimately ends up losing people money. So it gives you a much more insight into what's actually in that package deal. Yeah, exactly. It's completely transparent. I think then again, come back to the investor education. You know, any investor should be aware of what they're investing in and the risk. I mean, all ETFs do is just replicate whatever that investment is. And you know, whether it's tech stocks or whether it's um, junk bonds, you know, people just need to be aware that if I'm investing in this particular piece of the market, and most times ETFs are just passive. So that means they're not trying to do anything fancy um, in terms of picking the right bonds or the right stocks to be in. They're just giving you exposure to a particular sector. Um, and therefore, it's kind of on, the onus is on the investors to say, okay, do I really understand the risks of these junk bonds that uh, I've got in my ETF? Do I understand what happens if this market goes south and how can this market go south? Do you experience a lot of uh, divergence between... What I was wondering about was, would you have a day where the underlying assets themselves are going up, but say there for some reason there's been a sell triggered on a specific ETF. Does that does that happen much where they run uh, opposite of each other? I was just a random thought I was having. Well it should it should never happen. Um <laughs> unless I'm, I'm trying to think of what the the exception could be. Um but 
Yeah, typically you say something bad on this podcast and it goes out into the news and it says, well, William Ryan, the granite shares said this. And so everyone goes and, (laughs) you know, like that would be an instance, right? Like, but other than that, it should represent the value of the assets that are in the ETFs, right? (laughs) Like that. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. I was just wondering what the, what type of, if there were any increased risks to them really, really at all. uh, Well, yeah, again, the, the way I'd like people to think about it is it, the risk is, is not the ETF per se, the fund structure. It's what the fund is invested in because that's where your return is coming from. The mm-hmm. ETF itself is just like a mutual fund. It's just like saying if you, if you, if you interchange the phrases, it's just like saying, well, what's the risk of mutual funds? Well, the risk is the mutual fund that you're invested in is invested in something that does badly. And you know, that's the same with ETFs. I think that there have been concerns, broader concerns at different parts that in very volatile markets um, that you know, ETFs um, could be, could be a, a more risk to investors in that time with volatility. But you know, we've been through the tech crash. We've been through the financial crisis. We've just been through the pandemic, um, at least from a stock market crash perspective in March. And ETFs all, all held up you know, very well. So I think if anything, it's just you know, further enhance the proposition to people that you can go through these massive stress events um, and still be able to sell if you need or buy if you want. So uh, I was just wondering, this being a political podcast, which one is harder to account for, the SEC or the Fed? (laughs) (laughs) Or FINRA. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, it depends on what you mean by account for, but now, the SEC, they're doing a job, obviously, to regulate the market, and um, they're no different at some level to any national regulator. And so the national regulator plays a very different role to the central bank. And you know, from that perspective, the central bank you know, is independent um, of the government. Now, obviously, people will have their own view on, on you know, how true that is, but that's the general principle. Yeah, I was just kind of wondering that if you were making long-term planning goals for your investments uh, and create trying to create new ETFs or decide, you know, what exactly was going to be in them, what the what the hardest thing to account for, which which one would be would be the most difficult. So, we do. Right. I, think, right. I think yeah. I mean, I think I think from that perspective, then obviously the regulators, the the one that you have to deal with because you know we're in a highly regulated business, so. It's not the Fed who's regulating us. It's not the Fed who's deciding you know, whether we can launch an ETF or not. The Fed is more about the environment, the investing environment. And again, you know, no, nobody can control that, um, but they, they're just two different roles. Yeah. We do have uh, yeah. one listener question. Um, he asked, uh, asks, how would an investor know the volatility of the contract or agreement would that be market history or something else? And I'm, I'm wondering if he means the volatility of the, of the ETF um, market history or something else. And again, that probably goes back to what you were talking about, the underlying uh, commodities or the underlying investment. Yeah. So uh, again, it's the, it's the same point that ETF is just the wrapper, but the underlying investment that should be, you know, a standardized thing, whether it's gold, whether it's the S and P 500, whether it's oil and there should be, be, for the, for the most part, it's easy to find out what the volatility of these particular things is online. Um, but of course, there are special investment services um, that will be able to give you that in more detail. 
but you'll know you should know like the major the volatility of major things like the S and P five hundred. You can say, okay, well, if the S and P five hundred is this, is it more or less volatile, and do I understand the reason why? Right. Um, but that that should be fairly fairly easy to to get. But it's different to something like the VIX, which is a measure of volatility kind of itself. Yeah. So uh, I guess since we're wrapping up here, um, one thing, Charlie, did you have a have another? have another one in there. The main thing I wanted to ask was that you've been at uh, a, a few different companies and we talk a lot about uh, bettering yourself and uh, trying to achieve all of your goals and, and do all these things in life that you think you're meant to do. And, and so this would go towards uh, what kind of advice would you have for younger entrepreneurs? Because what it seems like you've taken some risks in your, in your life and uh you know, what, how do you get over those hurdles of deciding to take those risks? I think, um, you know, we could talk very eloquently about it and I could probably go into a huge um, sort of preamble about it, but ultimately it just comes down to get on with it. And, <laughs> you know, one of the biggest things that I think is it, the, the inhibitors to people doing anything is themselves. Like they, they can't get out of their own way. And, you know, there are always going to be risks. There are always going to be pros and cons to anything you do in life. But from a business perspective, one of the most valuable things I think I can, I can tell people is just, just get on with it. You know, just start, do something. Um, and, you know, life is short. Uh, you don't have time to kind of wait around. And if it doesn't work out, so what? You know, try something else. Um, I just feel like there's not enough people that just give it a go. Um, and you know, just get on with it. Yeah. And see what so, happens. It's, it's like anything else, like working out or anything else. It's like, start today. There's no start reason. Today. Yeah. There's there no people, reason. It's, it's, that's a great analogy, a great analogy, yeah. which is the whole working out thing. You know, oh, when's the right time for me to go on a diet today? Right. You know, when's <laughs> the right time for me to start working out? You know, well, yeah. I'll let the summer go and then I'll start doing this fitness thing or do it. It's like, no, right. Just do it now. Like, get on with it. What's stopping you? Why not do it today? Put the um, Twix down I think that's now. The thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people are really afraid of the failure. And if you never really try towards something, then, then you can't fail. But unfortunately, some people should also see that as a type of failure if, uh, if they did want to do something and, well, yeah, because and never you, tried. Because <laughs> when you look back, you'll just be, you'll, you're like, you know, they say the number one thing you regret is all the things that you wish you would have done and you didn't do, not the things that oh, you tried absolutely. and failed at. I think, I think that's maybe the big difference because that's always the way I've felt about it, um, which is I would hate to think, you know, I, I, remember, I remember one time I was, uh, it was a conversation I had with my father and um, we were just in the car one day and just randomly got subject. And he said to me on the subject of his work, he said, um, you know, I always, I always regretted um, not doing something on my own. And I, it just sort of stuck with me. We never, we never talked more about it, um, but I just never wanted to kind of be in that position of saying, you know, there was a fundamental regret. I know I could have done it. I think I could have done it, but I didn't do it. And, you know, now it's something I regret. It's like, I'd love to, I just, even if, even if I'm crashed and burned massively, uh, at least I knew, or at least I would know that, well, I tried it. It didn't work for me, but at least I gave it a try. Right. I've always had, yeah, I've always had the exact same 
idea of it. I told my wife, I said, I'll live in a cardboard box before I stop trying doing all, all these things that I want to do. Uh, I, I can't stand the idea of looking back and thinking that I didn't try that one thing that, that I could have done. Yeah, so, especially, especially if you want to do it, especially if it's a dream or especially if it's something you feel like that would bring you health, you know, wealth, you know, happiness. I mean, that, it's just, why would you not do it? Right. And then that, that, that gives you, you know, what we talk about here is it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning. Pursuing something you love like that is what gives you the meaning and purpose in life. And that's what drives you to get out of bed every single day. And then when you look back, you're like, man, I, I was capable of providing value to the world. And you can look back and be like, yeah, I've had a, I've had a good life. It doesn't matter yeah, what the, what really the number is in your bank account, but it's, it's more about pursuing that meaning and doing something valuable that, yeah, and I think that you're kind of hitting on, I think, the essence of entrepreneurship, which is, you know, fundamentally, it's about people doing what they love or what they enjoy. It just so happens that they, you know, creating a business out of it is sort of a side thing. Um, no. But for a lot of people, you know, that's, that's what they love to do. And I always think professional athletes, for the most part, are a good example of this, where, you know, if you leave aside all the hype, if you ask um, a lot of professional athletes, you know, what they would be doing if they didn't have the money, if it wasn't the fame, et cetera, it'd say the same thing, which is, well, I'd still be playing the game every day. It'd just be, you know, like I was when I was in my teens or right. whatever with, with no, no money or no fame or nothing around it. It's just they fundamentally love playing the game. That's what got them there in the first place. Just so happens that it's very lucrative to do that. For the love of the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, where uh, where can people find uh, all the different ETFs that you guys are offering, and uh, get all that information on on what they're wrap- what's inside the wrapper? Yeah. Uh, so, where can they go to do that? So they can go to graniteshares.com, which is our website. Just as it sounds, granite like the rock, shares like shares dot uh, com, uh, and you can check us out there. Very easy to get in, get a contact with us. Um, so yeah, please have a look and let us know if you've got any questions. Awesome. That's well, excellent. We, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing the video. Just yeah, no problem. You no know, random. Uh, we're should. all we're all working from home. These well, I'm, I don't know if you're working from home, but these days, it's, am, yeah. sometimes you're just not ready for video. So we appreciate you popping on and yeah, uh, being able no to worries. do this for our Patreon supporters and uh, everyone else on all the channels. So, uh, Will Ryan, we thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed right, the conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Will. Thank you. I learned a lot.